Shane by Jack Schaefer. Chapter 4 The sun was already well up the sky when I awakened the next morning. I had been a long time getting to sleep, because my mind was full of the day's excitement and shifting moods. I could not straighten out in my mind the way the grown folks had behaved, the way things that did not really matter so much had become so important to them. I had lain in my bed thinking of our visitor out in the bunk in the barn. It scarce seemed possible that he was the same man I had first seen, stern and chilling in his dark solitude, riding up our road. Something in father, something not of words or of actions, but of the essential substance of the human spirit, had reached out and spoken to him, and he had replied to it, and had unlocked a part of himself to us. He was far off and unapproachable at times, even when he was right there with you. Yet somehow he was closer, too, than my uncle, mother's brother, had been when he visited us the summer before. I had been thinking, too, of the effect he had on father and mother. They were more alive, more vibrant, like they wanted to show more what they were when they were with him. I could appreciate that, because I felt the same way myself. But it puzzled me that a man so deep and vital in his own being, so ready to respond to father, should be riding a lone trail out of a closed and guarded past. I realized with a jolt how late it was. The door to my little room was closed. Mother must have closed it so I could sleep undisturbed. I was frantic that the others might have finished breakfast and that our visitor was gone and I had missed him. I pulled on my clothes, not even bothering with buttons, and ran to the door. They were still at the table. Father was fussing with his pipe. Mother and Shane were working on a last round of coffee. All three of them were subdued and quiet. They stared at me as I burst out of my room. "'My heavens,' said Mother. "'You came in here like something was after you. What's the matter?' "'I just thought—' I blurted out, nodding at our visitor, that maybe he had ridden off and forgotten me. Shane shook his head slightly, looking straight at me. I wouldn't forget you, Bob. He pulled himself up a little in his chair. He turned to Mother, and his voice took on a bantering tone. And I wouldn't forget your cooking, ma'am. If you begin having a special lot of people passing by at mealtimes— "'That'll be because a grateful man has been boasting of your flannel cakes all along the road.' "'Now there's an idea,' struck in Father, as if he was glad to find something safe to talk about. "'We'll turn this place into a boarding-house. "'Marion'll fill folks full of her meals, and I'll fill my pockets full of their money. "'That hits me as a mighty convenient arrangement.' "'Mother sniffed at him, but she was pleased at their talk.' and she was smiling as they kept on playing with the idea while she stirred me up my breakfast. She came right back at them, threatening to take father at his word and make him spend all his time peeling potatoes and washing dishes. They were enjoying themselves, even though I could feel a bit of constraint behind the easy joshing. It was remarkable, too, how natural it was to have this Shane sitting there and joining in, almost like he was a member of the family. There was none of the awkwardness some visitors always brought with them. You did feel you ought to be on your good behavior with him, 
a mite extra careful about your manners and your speech. But not stiffly so, just quiet and friendly about it. He stood up at last, and I knew he was going to ride away from us, and I wanted desperately to stop him. Father did it for me. You certainly are a man for being in a hurry. Sit down, Shane. I've a question to ask you. Father was suddenly very serious. Shane, standing there, was as suddenly withdrawn into a distant alertness, but he dropped back into his chair. Father looked directly at him. Are you running away from anything? Shane stared at the plate in front of him for a long moment. It seemed to me that a shade of sadness passed over him. Then he raised his eyes and looked directly at Father. No, I'm not running away from anything. Not in the way you mean. Good. Father stooped forward and stabbed at the table with a forefinger for emphasis. Look, Shane, I'm not a rancher. Now you've seen my place, you know that. I'm a farmer. Something of a stockman, maybe. But really a farmer. That's what I decided to be when I quit punching cattle for another man's money. That's what I want to be, and I'm proud of it. I've made a fair start. This outfit isn't as big as I hope to have it some day. But there's more work here already than one man can handle if it's to be done right. The young fellow I had ran out on me after he tangled with a couple of Fletcher's boys in town one day. Father was talking fast, and he paused to draw breath. Shane had been watching him intently. He moved his head to look out the window over the valley to the mountains, marching along the horizon. "'It's always the same,' he murmured. He was sort of talking to himself. "'The old ways die hard.' He looked at Mother, and then at me, and as his eyes came back to Father, he seemed to have decided something that had been troubling him. "'So Fletcher's crowding you,' he said gently. Father snorted. "'I don't crowd easy, but I've got a job to do here, and it's too big for one man, even for me. And none of the strays that drift up this way are worth a darn.' "'Yes,' Shane said. His eyes were crinkling again and he was one of us again, and waiting. "'Will you stick here a while and help me get things in shape for the winter?' Shane rose to his feet. He loomed up taller across the table than I had thought him. "'I never figured to be a farmer, Starrett. I would have laughed at the notion a few days ago. All the same, you've hired yourself a hand.' He and Father were looking at each other in a way that showed they were saying things words could never cover. Shane snapped it by swinging toward Mother. And I'll rate your cooking, ma'am, wages enough. Father slapped his hands on his knees. You'll get good wages and you'll earn them. First off, now, why don't you drop into town and get some work clothes? Try Sam Grafton's store. Tell him to put it on my bill. Shane was already at the door. I'll buy my own, he said, and was gone. Father was so pleased he could not sit still. He jumped up and whirled Mother around. Marion, the sun shining mighty bright at last, we've got ourselves a man. But Joe, are you sure what you're doing? What kind of work can a man like that do? Oh, I know he stood right up to you with that stump, but that was something special. 
He's been used to good living and plenty of money. You can tell that. He said himself he doesn't know anything about farming. Neither did I when I started here. What a man knows isn't important. It's what he is that counts. I'll bet you that one was a cowpuncher when he was younger, and a top hand, too. Anything he does will be done right. You watch. In a week he'll be making even me hump, or he'll be bossing the place. Perhaps. No perhapsing about it. Did you notice how he took it when I told him about Fletcher's boys and young Morley? That's what fetched him. He knows I'm in a spot, and he's not the man to leave me there. Nobody'll push him around or scare him away. He's my kind of a man. Why, Joe Starrett, he isn't like you at all. He's smaller, and he looks different, and his clothes are different, and he talks different. I know he's lived different. Huh? Father was surprised. I wasn't talking about things like that. Shane came back with a pair of dungaree pants, a flannel shirt, stout work shoes, and a good, serviceable Stetson. He disappeared into the barn and emerged a few moments later in his new clothes, leading his horse unsaddled. At the pasture gate he slipped off the halter, turned the horse in with a hearty slap, and tossed the halter to me. "'Take care of a horse, Bob, and it will take care of you. This one now has brought me better than a thousand miles in the last few weeks.' and he was striding away to join father, who was ditching the field out past the growing corn, where the ground was rich but marshy, and would not be worth much till it was properly drained. I watched him swinging through the rows of young corn, no longer a dark stranger, but part of the place, a farmer like father and me. Only he was not a farmer, and never really could be. It was not three days before you saw that he could stay right beside father in any kind of work, show him what needed to be done, and he could do it, and like as not he would figure out a better way of getting it done. He never shirked the meanest task. He was ever ready to take the hard end of any chore. Yet you always felt in some indefinable fashion that he was a man apart. There were times when he would stop and look off at the mountains, and then down at himself, at any tool he happened to have in his hands, as if in wry amusement at what he was doing. You had no impression that he thought himself too good for the work, or did not like it. He was just different. He was shaped in some firm forging of past circumstance for other things. For all his slim build, he was plenty rugged. His slenderness could fool you at first— but when you saw him close in action, you saw that he was solid, compact, that there was no waste weight on his frame, just as there was no waste effort in his smooth, flowing motion. What he lacked alongside father in size and strength, he made up in quickness of movement, in instinctive coordination of mind and muscle, and in that sudden fierce energy that had burned in him when the old stump tried to topple back on him. Mostly, this last slept in him, not needed while he went easily through the day's routine. But when a call came, it could flame forward with a driving intensity that never failed to frighten me. I would be frightened, as I had tried to explain to Mother, not at Shane himself, 
but at the suggestion it always gave me of things in the human equation beyond my comprehension. At such times there would be a concentration in him, a singleness of dedication to the instant need, that seemed to me at once wonderful and disturbing. And then he would be again the quiet, steady man who shared with father my boy's allegiance. I was beginning to feel my oats about then, proud of myself for being able to lick Ollie Johnson at the next place down the road. Fighting, boy style, was much in my mind. Once, when father and I were alone, I asked him, "'Could you beat Shane? In a fight, I mean.' "'Son, that's a tough question. If I had to, I might do it. But by Godfrey, I'd hate to try it. Some men just plain have dynamite inside them, and he's one. I'll tell you, though, I've never met a man I'd rather have more on my side in any kind of trouble.' I could understand that, and it satisfied me. But there were things about Shane I could not understand. When he came into the first meal, after he agreed to stay on with us, he went to the chair that had always been father's, and stood beside it, waiting for the rest of us to take the other places. Mother was surprised, and somewhat annoyed. She started to say something. Father quieted her with a warning glance. He walked to the chair across from Shane, and sat down like this was the right and natural spot for him, and afterwards he and Shane always used these same places. I could not see any reason for the shift, until the first time one of our homestead neighbors knocked on the door while we were eating, and came straight on in as most of them usually did. Then I suddenly realized that Shane was sitting opposite the door where he could directly confront anyone coming through it. I could see that was the way he wanted it to be, but I could not understand why he wanted it that way. In the evenings after supper, when he was talking lazily with us, he would never sit by a window. Out on the porch he would always face the road. He liked to have a wall behind him, and not just to lean against. No matter where he was, away from the table, before sitting down he would swing his chair into position back to the nearest wall, not making any show, simply putting it there, and bending into it in one easy motion. He did not even seem to be aware that this was unusual. It was part of his fixed alertness. He always wanted to know everything happening around him. This alertness could be noted, too, in the watch he kept, without appearing to make any special effort, on every approach to our place. He knew first when anyone was moving along the road, and he would stop whatever he was doing to study carefully any passing rider. We often had company in the evenings, for the other homesteaders regarded father as their leader, and would drop in to discuss their affairs with him. They were interesting men, in their own fashions, a various assortment. But Shane was not anxious to meet people. He would share little in their talk. With us he spoke freely enough. We were, in some subtle way, his folks. Though we had taken him in, you had the feeling that he had adopted us. But with others he was reserved, courteous and soft-spoken, yet withdrawn beyond a line of his own making. These things puzzled me, and not me alone. The people in town, and those who rode or drove in pretty regularly, were all curious about him. 
It was a wonder how quickly everyone in the valley, and even on the ranches out in the open country, knew that he was working with father. They were not sure they liked having him in their neighborhood. Ledyard had told some tall tale about what happened at our place that made them stare sharply at Shane whenever they had a chance. But they must have had their own measure of Ledyard, for they did not take his story too straight. They just could not really make up their minds about Shane, and it seemed to worry them. More than once, when I was with Ollie Johnson on the way to our favorite fishing hole, the other side of town, I heard men arguing about him in front of Mr. Grafton's store. "'He's like one of these here slow-burning fuses,' I heard an old mule skinner say one day. "'Quiet, and no sputtering. So quiet, you forget it's burning. Then it sets off one heck of a blow-off of trouble when it touches powder. That's him.' and there's been trouble brewing in this valley for a long spell now. Maybe it'll be good when it comes. Maybe it'll be bad. You just can't tell. And that puzzled me, too. What puzzled me most, though, was something it took me nearly two weeks to appreciate. And yet, it was the most striking thing of all. Shane carried no gun. In those days, guns were as familiar all through the territory as boots and saddles. They were not used much in the valley, except for occasional hunting, but they were always in evidence. Most men did not feel fully dressed without one. We homesteaders went in mostly for rifles and shotguns when we had any shooting to do. A pistol slapping on the hip was a nuisance for a farmer. Still, every man had his cartridge belt and holstered colt to be worn when he was not working or loafing around the house. Father buckled his on whenever he rode off on any trip, even just into town, as much out of habit, I guess, as anything else. But this Shane never carried a gun, and that was a peculiar thing, because he had a gun. I saw it once. I saw it when I was alone in the barn one day, and I spotted his saddle roll lying on his bunk. Usually he kept it carefully put away underneath. He must have forgotten it this time, for it was there, in the open, by the pillow. I reached to sort of feel it, and I felt the gun inside. No one was near, so I unfastened the straps and unrolled the blankets. There it was, the most beautiful-looking weapon I ever saw, beautiful and deadly-looking. The holster and filled cartridge belt were of the same soft black leather as the boots tucked under the bunk, tooled in the same intricate design. I knew enough to know that the gun was a single-action Colt, the same model as the regular army issue that was the favorite of all men in those days, and that old-timers used to say was the finest pistol ever made. This was the same model, but this was no army gun. It was black, almost blue-black, with the darkness not in any enamel, but in the metal itself. The grip was clear on the outer curve, shaped to the fingers on the inner curve, and two ivory plates were set into it with exquisite skill, one on each side. The smooth invitation of it tempted your grasp. I took hold and pulled the gun out of the holster. It came so easily that I could hardly believe it was there in my hand. Heavy, like father's, it was somehow much easier to handle. You held it up to aiming level, and it seemed to balance itself into your hand. It was clean and polished and oiled, 
the empty cylinder, when I released the catch and flicked it, spun swiftly and noiselessly. I was surprised to see that the front sight was gone, the barrel smooth right down to the end, and that the hammer had been filed to a sharp point. Why should a man do that to a gun? Why should a man with a gun like that refuse to wear it and show it off? And then, staring at that dark and deadly efficiency, I was again suddenly chilled, and I quickly put everything back exactly as before and hurried out into the sun. The first chance I tried to tell father about it. Father, I said, all excited, do you know what Shane has rolled up in his blankets? Probably a gun. But, but how did you know? Have you seen it? No, that's what he would have. I was all mixed up. Well, why doesn't he ever carry it? Do you suppose maybe it's because he doesn't know how to use it very well? Father chuckled, like I had made a joke. Son, I wouldn't be surprised if he could take that gun and shoot the buttons off your shirt with you a-wearing it, and all you'd feel would be a breeze. Gosh, a gory. Why does he keep it hidden in the barn, then? I don't know. Not exactly. Why don't you ask him? Father looked straight at me, very serious. That's one question I'll never ask him, and don't you ever say anything to him about it. There are some things you don't ask a man, not if you respect him. He's entitled to stake his claim to what he considers private, to himself alone. But you can take my word for it, Bob, that when a man like Shane doesn't want to tote a gun, you can bet your shirt, buttons and all, he's got a mighty good reason. That was that. I was still mixed up. But whenever Father gave you his word on something, there was nothing more to be said. He never did that except when he knew he was right. I started to wander off. Bob? Yes, Father? Listen to me, son. Don't get to liking Shane too much. Why not? Is there anything wrong with him? No. There's nothing wrong about Shane. Nothing you could put that way. There's more right about him than most any man you're ever likely to meet. But... Father was throwing around for what to say. But he's fiddle-footed. Remember, he said so himself. He'll be moving on one of these days, and then you'll be all upset if you get to liking him too much. That was not what Father really meant. But that was what he wanted me to think. So... I did not ask any more questions.